I maybe knew the answers, but didn't want to acknowledge that I had them. I think so much of grieving is asking these what if questions that perhaps you can never answer. But in my case, it was compounded by the CIA, a secret war, global boundaries, and then the people that I wanted to talk to were dead. Welcome to the Live Drop. I'm Mark Valley, and I'm fascinated with the secret war in Laos. It was sponsored by Americans, fought by Laotians, concurrently with the Vietnam War. Uh, when I saw Jessica Pierce Rotondi's book, What We Inherit, I had to talk to her. In 1972, Jack Pierce's AC-130 gunship was shot down over Laos. Decades later, his niece Jessica picked up the search where her mother and grandfather had left off. Her quest led her to Vincennes to revisit the secret war in Laos in which the CIA aided Laotian fighters against the North Vietnamese seeking to secure their supply lines along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Jessica's memoir, published last month, was 10 years in the making. started with finding a closet of classified documents her mother had assembled. Jessica talks about the secret war, the legacy of family and war, the nature and process of grief, and the healing powers of storytelling. Begin transmission now. I want to talk about the trip, your research, your decision to write it. Did its meaning change at all for you as you as you were writing it? That's a fantastic question. And the answer is 100% yes. I mean, I began writing it when I was 20 years old. My mother had just passed away and I went into her closet and found declassified CIA documents and letters and maps that all pointed to this family secret. And that was my Uncle Jack, who disappeared when his plane was shot down over Laos on March 29th, 1972 and just never came home. And when I found these letters, I was just so startled because I did the math and I realized, you know, when she was teaching me to walk and then drive, she was kind of carrying all of the secret grief about a brother I didn't even know she had. And growing up, my grandfather's service in World War II, uh, when he parachuted out of a burning B-17, was captured by the Nazis and spent three years in Stalag 17. I mean, I talked to Grandpa about that all the time. His medals were on the wall. He marched in every Memorial Day parade. So there was kind of this double moment at 23 of losing my mother and then losing kind of this faith or this sense of trust in the family that I was raised in. And the book, once I did the research and kind of followed my grandmother's and my grandfather's and my mother's letters to Laos, I just learned so much more about the CIA-led war there that left it the most heavily bombed country in the world. And the book became not just about my own family, but about um, the hundreds and thousands of families that were impacted on both sides of the conflict. Wow, you're good at this. <laughs> <laughs> and that's my talk with Jessica Rosandi. Um, well, pretty much I got everything I need uh, <laughs> at this point. You know, wow, you are really good. You really, uh, you know, concise explanation of kind of what led to this. You know, first of all, I know it's been a while, but, um, you know, my condolences on your, your mother's passing. She seemed like quite a woman. She, she, it's must have been ama- amazing finding out all this stuff about your your mother and you know what she, this burden that she'd carried and this research that she'd done and this kind of quest that she had had started off on. I guess the first question is maybe we can talk a little bit about what it is she did that you never knew about and maybe why she didn't really talk about it much to you. Sure. Well, one of the most astounding things that I found was a letter from her to President Ford that was actually actually responded to, um, kind of saying, uh, you know, I went to Paris when I was 23, the same age I was when I lost her. She marched into the Vietnamese and Lao embassies without an appointment, kind of demanding answers about her brother. And I think of my mother, you know, obviously in a very maternal role, I lost her when I was young, so I didn't really get that kind of adult relationship with her. But to see her at an age when I was just gutted with grief, being able to fly internationally and really advocate for her brother in such 
deeply researched way was just incredible to me. And then I found the great photos of her in bell bottoms. And that was really um, startling for me too, to see not only her anger, but her activism, which was not a side of her that she shared, but because she was protecting me in some ways. I just look at her father, you know, he died believing his son still lived. He retired at 50 from the Pennsylvania State Police to devote his life to looking for his son. And he admitted himself to newspaper interviews. There wasn't a lot of time. She really wanted to be present for piano lessons and dancing and for all those things that you want to give your kids. But even with her cancer, I mean, she was very tight upper lipped about it. She was very strong. Um, and that was, I think she learned from her father when you're grieving, when you're holding in pain. And in the Pierce family, where I'm from, you really have to stay strong. And I think that's something that she inherited, which kind of leads into the title of the book, What We Inherit. It's not only eye color or being from a military family, but it's the ways that we handle grief and the way that we hold on to hope, maybe even past its expiration date. Yeah, that was interesting. The way a family handles grief and holds on to hope. It's interesting. It's a family that it seems to me had um, had learned how to coexist with desire, hope, and also uncertainty. Very much so. And that's something I've been thinking about so much um, in a global pandemic and quarantine like we are now. I mean, my grandfather was in Stalag 17 for almost three years. And every morning he got up not knowing if he'd see another morning. And one of the things I love about my grandfather that was a story passed on in my family was that every night he would break curfew and read from this small book. It was a book of prayers, but it was something that could have gotten him killed. But in an, you know, in such a landscape of death, it was kind of a defiant reminder of life for him. And then years later, when my mom was undergoing chemo, she read aloud from that same book to feel connected to her father's strength. So you know, I couldn't have imagined this book would come out during a global pandemic by any means, but I've been reading aloud to, from my family's story almost every evening to strangers. And it kind of taught me, you know, it doesn't matter if you're in a prison, if you're in a prison of your body, or if you're in quarantine and, and lockdown, I think stories can connect us to the people that we love and that we miss. And I think that was true in my family, and I'm finding it to be more true uh, in my own life now. I don't know. I mean, I have a family. I have like aunts and uncles, and I just remember my mother talking about a kid. Oh, Uncle Joe used to do this, or your Uncle John used to do this, or and you know. So <laughs> I'm just wondering why did she refer to your Uncle Jack at all? So I mean, that's that's a great question, and one I've thought so much about in the last decade too. I mean, there was a photo of him on the wall in my grandparents' home next to my mother. They're both um, blonde-haired, blue-eyed kids, um, smiling back in their high school yearbook photos, and that's really the only image I had seen of him. And then there was another time, I think I was five or six, when I was going through my mom's jewelry box and I found this beautiful kind of garnet red blood ring and I started playing with it. It's, it's a scene in the book. And um, my mom said, mm -hmm. please put that back. And she was never really angry with me personally. So her reaction was really kind of confusing. It stuck with me. And I found out later that was something that Jack gave her. Um, it was the last time he came home. He had gone to Thailand on leave, gotten his sister the ring, and then just never came home. So I think... Maybe it was her private way of grieving. Maybe it was protecting me, but I think it was also something she could barely verbalize, which, you know, she had maybe just run out of words after all those years of fighting and those letters. Yeah. Well, you didn't run out of words. <laughs> you seem, Thankfully. You, 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 seem, you seem to have picked up the, uh, I mean, did you feel like a family duty to, to sort of continue the search or, or was it something that you, that you genuinely felt? curious about? Or did you feel like this would be a great idea for a book? Yeah. So, I mean, when or I first three. found it, or all three, all maybe, three. Right? yeah, I don't think it is a clear cut answer. I, I, um, you know, I was so curious to kind of meet my mother at my age. I was like desperately looking for some kind of message from her after her death. And I didn't get that, you know, goodbye letter. But what I got was getting to kind of experience her grief, which kind of helped me through my own. It was like this roadmap 
grief. And I wasn't going to necessarily write about it until I found something else of mom's. Uh, we were selling the house in Massachusetts. Um, you know, my dad was moving on and I was home for Christmas and I found an unpublished manuscript that my mother had written. It wasn't about war. It wasn't about loss. It was actually a children's book, but mom had sent it to one publisher um, gotten one rejection letter, which she had included in the manuscript, and just never sent it out again. And I think from that point on, it became a personal mission of mine to see my mother's story published. It's almost like some people can only take so much heartbreak. I think that's true. In our family, every generation has lost a child, starting with my grandfather. He had a brother, you know, he survived a bombing in World War II, imprisonment, came home. His brother was just drowned in a lake on vacation. Um, I lost a cousin when I was 18 at a car crash. You know, mom passed away young. And I think that can mark a family in so many different ways. Um, but in our family, it became almost this rallying point where um, the people that are left now, we're so much closer now that these secrets are out in the open and we can remember and say the names of the people that we love out loud. So let's dig into the research. You, there, there are also some other secrets that you say you say out loud. I mean, you talked with some people from the CIA. I mean, I've talked with some people in Laos. And they say, you know, it wasn't a secret war to us. <laughs> mm, <exactly. laughs> it, was hap- it was happening all around. But with, uh, you know, the Central Intelligence Agency, of course, there was Air America flying in and out of there. And there was this whole war we had going over in Laos to keep the North Vietnamese North Vietnamese occupied. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering, you know, maybe how much you knew about that before kind of researching that and who were some of the people that that really kind of helped you out? Sure. So I, I think another reason I was just so determined to tell this story was that I hadn't learned about this war in history books. You know, I took my AP history class in my public high school and we kind of ended neatly at World War II. We're like, okay, you can read about the Cold War on your own kids. Korea, you know, you'll figure it out. And, you know, Korea is called the Forgotten War. Laos is called the Secret War in American Parlance. I'm actually working on a piece for the History Channel about this very issue right now. It's just not something that is discussed here. And then I got on the ground in Laos and it's, you know, the heroes from that war, the communist leaders are on their currency. Uh, In the town my uncle was bombing, I'll never forget it. I was walking past this home and there was a laundry line stretched across the front yard and there was a little boy's super man pajamas. So maybe he's a three or four year old, this iconic American symbol. And it was strung over a bomb crater that stretched about a couple hundred yards. And it was just such a shocking dichotomy to me. It's not the secret war there because it's in their front yards. It's in their homes. 50 people a year still die from bombs left behind in that war. Uh, 200,000 people total um, have passed since that war because of the legacy um, that is left behind. So I think it's very much not a past tense history book thing there, but an ongoing an ongoing occurrence in the daily lives of people there. So that's one of the reasons I really wanted to talk about it in this book. And then in terms of the CIA, I mean, I spent a decade researching and writing this, and the hardest thing was probably getting the CIA on the record about it. As you can imagine, um, a lot of it is still classified. Um, more and more is getting declassified as time goes on. Once in a while, you'll come across a name that sounds really believable. Then you come up across another one. It could be, in fact, be his real name, but Richard Trencher. I mean, uh-huh. It does sound a little bit like a meta pseudonym there. You know, anything with trench or trench for a, for a, for a spy seems uh, a little suggestive. But was that was that a real person? That's his real name. Um, we were on the record together. I met him through a book club. So I was talking to some friends of mine about my research. 
And this girl was like, oh yeah, my dad was in, it was in Laos in the seventies. And I was like, was your dad CIA? She's like, how did you know that? (laughs) And I ended up calling up her father who had never discussed the war with her. And we talked for over three hours. His phone like was dying at one point we had to call back. And he had just some incredible stories about, you know, being in Vientiane, the capital during the war and, you know, enemies during the day, the Chinese, the Russians, the Americans were throwing back whiskey at these wild parties at night and then getting back to killing each other during the day. And I just really learned so much from him about, you know, he was in his early 20s at the time, the amount of responsibility he had going to these remote villages, bargaining with local chiefs, trying to kind of win them over before the communists kind of landed there the next day and tried to have the same conversation. It was just, you know, day by day, the story changed for him on the ground. And he was an incredible source and one I don't think I would have had access to if not for that personal connection. Yeah, they had a pretty unique unique job out there. Also, there was another interesting character who showed up was Rosemary Conway. Could you talk about her? Oh, she was incredible. Um, So she was in her early 30s when she was in Laos. And she told me she was in charge of getting all the Lao pilots and their planes out of Laos right before Ven Shen fell. She was actually captured. And the US government tried to kind of deny that she was one of ours. But the Associated Press in Australia ran a photograph of her in prison, this like, you know, 30-something white lady. The story went bananas and went national. I actually found a declassified document to uh, Nixon, I think it was, um, saying you know, we have to get Conway out. It's becoming a national problem for us. Um, and she said that Langley were the people that got her out and actually paid for her freedom to the tune of $1.2 million. <laughs> and she was, you know, she was incarcerated by the path at Lao. And she claims that while she was incarcerated, they mentioned they were keeping pilots, especially in this place called Zepan, which happens to be the village my uncle was bombing the night he disappeared. So that was a huge break in the story. I mean, for years, my grandfather thought that he was perhaps alive, perhaps captured, like so many folks, I think in the 80s did with all those movies that kind of fictionalized uh, survivors, right? Like kind of Rambo type stories. But it was the first time I had seen a real CIA officer on the record present the argument that perhaps there were people left behind. Yeah, you talk about the Rambo thing. I mean, it must have it must have occurred to you that kind of sort of dark irony of it. I mean, not to dishonor, you know, people searching for MIAs and, and POWs. And, you know, I, I just really can't imagine that kind of anguish that would, uh, you know, drive some people. But you must have felt a little bit strange at one point you know, realizing, okay, I'm a white person from the yes. United States <laughs> and I'm standing here in your country on this red earth and, you know, the Superman pajamas are flopping in the breeze. And hey, by the way, I'd like to know more about this guy who was dropping bombs. Mm-hmm. How did you kind of work around that? Yeah, I mean, there was an incredible sense of gu- of guilt that just pervaded my my entire experience there. You know, I was aware of my position of privilege as a white woman from America going into this country where you can actually be jailed for even talking about the war. So I didn't want to put anyone in an uncomfortable position or in danger. So I had to be very thoughtful with how I conducted any kind of interview um, with the type of people that I approached. But one thing that really helped me, my guide there at the time was originally fairly hostile, and, and rightly so. Mr. Pei. Mr. Pei? Okay. Yeah. Yes. I have questions and, about him. Yeah. Okay. We'll get to him in a second. He's an interesting character. <laughs> uh, and I mean that quite literally. Uh, but he, uh, uh, you know, there was this one moment where we're in the village that my uncle was bombing, and a woman recognized him. And that's my first kind of inclination. Oh, I think he has some local ties here too. And then he took me to this temple where there was this Buddha that survived the bombings. Like the rest of the town was a completely flattened, it survived. There's bullet holes in the wall around it, but it lived. And we kind of knelt down there together. And um, I later found out he lost family during those very bombings. And I think 
I'm not going to give too much away about the ending of the book, but there's this moment where we do come across something that connects me to my past, where he actually held me. And in Lao culture, especially um, male and females don't necessarily touch. Touching a Western woman is not something that would normally be done. But this person who was so kind of hostile to me throughout our trip, and for good reason, um, we ended up really, really coming together over the sense of grief at the sheer loss of life of this war. And I think the way we connected wasn't me demanding answers to a question that was my story, but him also sharing what he had gone through. And it became more of a, a dialogue versus a reportage or him being the subject. Yeah, I imagine, you know, not being able to talk about it or, you know, kind of government censure and restriction would sort of limit, would limit not only personal, but national ability to, to kind of grieve and process events. Completely. And in Laos, you can't, you have to register under your real name for even social media accounts. So any news that's critical of the state can also land you in jail. So I think there is um, such a hesitation, but, uh, you know, in our own country, it's still very censored too. So it was just very fascinating to me that on both sides of this war, nobody wants to talk about it. I mean, I talked to the son of General Vang Pao, who was leading the Hmong forces um, that were kind of trained by the Americans. And he just abruptly got off the phone after a few minutes because it was just so uncomfortable for him to talk about what his father had done and what his family had been through. He had gone to Long Chen to visit dad, had seen the helicopters, the drugs, the bot, like all of this. And it's just, it's too much sometimes. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, I mean, Vincennes was one place, but Long Chen, that was, that was like wild headquarters north up there. Yeah, they built an entire city in the mud of the jungle. There were planes taking off and landing like 24-7. It was just, from the way I've heard it described, um, like the, the Wild West, like a frontier town. Think of, that's how Richard Trencher described it. He kind of likened it to like a gold rush town and the lawlessness and just how everyone was just, uh, you know, f like waves of CIA were fresh out there and c coming and going all the time. Howard Dean, his brother Charlie was killed in Laos in 1974. Apparently he went back to the village where he was where he was killed. He did, they didn't actually get their remains back until 2000, his remains back until 2003. He wasn't really sure what had happened to him. But um, it was a moving moment for him, you know, for Howard, for Howard Dean to go back and actually kind of stand on that ground and stand in that place. And um, mm. yeah, not to give anything away, but um, in your book, you're, you definitely, you go to ground zero. And uh, really? other things about the trip, you seem to be able to read a map really well. And I was just wondering if you kind of discovered some skills that you had, or you developed some skills in this, in this trip, maybe like on a practical level, what, what did you kind of learn about yourself? So if you're going after a bomb laden with unexploded bombs in the jungle, I highly recommend a satellite phone. Um, you know, I had a map from the eighties or no, the seventies rather that was, you know, so many years old, I knew the roads weren't going to be the same. I went in there kind of blind, but I also knew the coordinates of what I was after because I had found them in a declassified document. So while the service was kind of spotty there, every couple hours I was able to get a reading and kind of triangulate. And I should also give credit where credit is due. My friend Liz, who accompanied me around the world for this trip, was instrumental in kind of navigating me towards um, what we were trying to find. It it wasn't easy, but um, yeah, I think it was a mix of like stupid luck and being in my mid-20s and not really realizing the danger we were in. And then also just persistence. It was hot as hell over there. Uh, you know, there's like, un there's roads that aren't really reliable. There's jungle everywhere. There's really, you're not even supposed to be in the places we were. Um, so just n knowing that time was precious, we really had to work as quickly as we could. And I think all of those factors came together to allow us to find what we were looking for. You know, you're a really fun person to interview. There's just a, such a v sheer volume of information <laughs> that, uh, you know, you could just readily share like this. And um, it, it really kind of enhances my experience of reading the book. So I hope people who read the book, What We Inherit by Jessica Pierce 
Pierce Rotundi and also listen to this show. Continue listening to it because um, it's really kind of enriching that reading experience. Um, you mentioned your, your friend Liz as an ideal travel companion. I love the way you described her in like four sentences, you know, <laughs> one, one of which, one of which is she, she asked you, she would ask you questions that she already knew the answer to, to make you feel involved. Yeah. I mean, she's just an incredibly emotionally intelligent human being. Do you feel at all like you were kind of asking questions that you already knew the answer to? Wow. Yeah. Good question. I, I think for me, I maybe knew the answers, but didn't want to acknowledge that I had them. I think so much of grieving is asking these what if questions that perhaps you can never answer. But in my case, it was compounded by the CIA, a secret war, global boundaries, and then the people that I wanted to talk to were dead. My grandfather is gone. My mother is gone. Um, the only people that were left were strangers. And Mary Carr, who's a famous memoirist, has this incredible line that memoir, writing memoir, is like getting to talk to people or getting to hang with people on the other side of the grass. So people that have already kind of passed on. And I think the most enjoyable parts for me of this book were connecting with people that either knew the folks we were talking about or experienced some of the things that they experienced and made it kind of come alive again. So I think sometimes you don't ask a question to get an answer. You ask a question for the experience of having a dialogue again, a dialogue that perhaps was closed off to you previously. It's so true, right? I mean, sometimes sometimes I ask questions I already know the answer to, just for that purpose. I just want to have some dialogue. I just want somebody to talk to in the void. Especially in quarantine, I think. Especially in it's quarantine. It's feeling so much of us are feeling, right? Yeah. I think you, you went to this visit to the Lao National Museum, and you spoke to this Mr. Kumpet. Kumpet, I think. Yeah. It was really a kind of moving little scene where you, I think that's the same place where they have all the prosthetics hanging. What do they call that war in Laos? This, what we call the secret war. I mean, so uh, the American war, um, they, a lot of the captions, like they had a lot of the weaponry and the bombs and the, as you described, prosthetic limbs dangling from the ceiling uh, were from the American aggressors. I mean, that could have been the translator's choice of words, um, but that was what it presented to me as an English reader in all the museums that I visited. And it really is a narrative of incredible victory, right? These were people that um, were living in caves. A lot of the ones I talked to had completely fled the country. They had no access to the weaponry up until the Russians joined. My uncle was actually shot down by a Russian surface-to-air missile, which is why my grandpa never quite loved Russia again after that. But yeah, it really is a completely 180. And I used to, I grew up with images of people protesting Vietnam and, you know, effigies of Kissinger. And then I saw this one photo in the museum of Laos students marching with an, burning an effigy of Kissinger. And it was just um, this weird kind of twilight zone of the other end of the story that I'd never, ever seen before. I was just working on a television show in February or March. It's a CBS show called Blood and Treasure. And I play a character, the lead's father, and we find out that he, um, big spoiler alert here, we find out that he was actually one of the Ravens, one of these pilots from Air America. They base it in, in history on real events. So we were in, in Thailand and we were shooting, you know, kind of hacking our way through the jungle into this clearing. We finally get to this village, expect to get something. And I have to warn, you know, this actor who plays my son, Matt Barr, stop, don't go any further, it reveals that the whole field is just filled with these little bomblets. The bomblets, yeah, that's terrifying. And it's just, it's almost like a football field of these tiny little, they almost look like oranges. Mm, they're about that size, yeah. Yeah, about that size, and there's an entire field of them. And um, I think at that moment, I, it really hit me, wow, there was a lot of stuff that we left behind in Laos. And I guess I'm just wondering what, what their attitude about that is. Is it 
has it altered their attitude towards Americans now, or is it just something they've come to accept? Is it part of the war? Is it part of the present? Yeah. So, I mean, I was there in 2013. So I think it's changed even more. Obama was the first U.S. president to ever visit um, Laos. And that happened, I think, a handful of years ago now. But I mean, yeah, it was bombed more heavily than Germany and Japan combined during World War II. Uh, I think it was between 64 and 73, there was a plane load of bombs every eight minutes, 24 hours a day for nine years. So, I mean, there are still uninhabitable areas where you just can't build. Like people are cooking over the fire and their homes explode. And I think there's a lot more American kind of international NGO involvement now where a lot of American funding is going toward the bombs. And my next project, I'm actually talking to a lot of Vietnam veterans who um, are going back to Vietnam, to Laos, um, sometimes to Cambodia as well, and working directly with these people whose full-time job it is, is to remove these bobs, detect them, diffuse them safely so that kids don't pick them up and play with them anymore. So I, I think as more Americans get FaceTime there and kind of help, I think it's helping the cause. But I don't know if there, if, you know, I was in my Pennsylvania or in New York state and there were bombs in my backyard, I think it would be tough for me to, to forgive and forget. So I think it's still an ongoing process that's going to be with us for, for generations. Yeah, I think it's wonderful that you're bringing awareness to that as well. You know, it can kind of affect policy and, you know, rules of warfare and whether or not those those weapons can be used and whether or not other countries tolerate it as well, because they definitely have a, a legacy. I mean, in Cambodia and Vietnam as well. Yeah, and the 50th anniversary of the Cambodian invasion um, was just April 30th or April 28th of this past year. So um, I, I've seen a lot of stories kind of resurging about examining the impact of, of what that was all about. And yeah, I think as, as time goes on, we'll have more distance and we'll kind of have more stories come forward about this time. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm a white woman writing about this as the ancestor of someone that was doing the bombing. I look forward to reading Lao accounts as well of, of what happened when it's safe for people to do so. Yeah, but your family paid a price. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I am still so proud of my uncle. I love my family so much. I think, you know, hearing stories of him as a young man, not as a soldier, but as, you know, this kind of ladies man, as you hear in the book, um, he was just so full of life. He was a talker. He was a storyteller in the family. So I always kind of wonder what it would have been like to get to talk with him about his experiences. And this is the closest I think I could come to that was writing his story. Yeah, I was in the army. A Spectre gunship, an AC-130, that was a devastating piece of equipment that he worked on. Yeah, and he wanted to be a gunner like his father on a B-17. He was originally on Huey Chopper, du Chopper duty. That was his dream. And then he got pulled into the AC-130 program um, when his special operations squadron kind of shifted gears. So it wasn't his dream by any means. You know, actually gunners on the AC-130s, you didn't even fire the gun. You kind of loaded them. And then uh, it was the pilot that shot them off. So that was a big source of tension in the book for him was, you know, trying to go up in the air like his father once would to kind of live his dad's legacy. And then the fact that he was lost and in a slow moving gunship on a full moon night, there were just so many factors at play, but those were scary things. Yeah. You talked with Jim Spear, one of his, one of his, uh, like a crew member from another ship. Did you talk with any other pilots, any other Air America pilots or Vietnam? Those men were amazing. I talked to about six for the book. Not all of them made it in um, to the interview. One of them, he has lived in Thailand near Ubon Air Force Base ever since the war, essentially. And he said, you know what? I love my friends and my family in California, but I'm closer to my friends and the people that I love in Thailand than I will ever be thousands of miles away. And he just built a new life because he, he couldn't go home again. And, you know, the camaraderie they talked about, you know, building a makeshift bar in the gunner barracks, um, hiring local women to kind of, kind of come in and do bartending, recreating a sense of America while they were in this weird mission they couldn't tell their family and friends about. But also the loss, my uncle's loss, every single man in his program knew about it because 
it was such a big deal. There were only two gunships lost in the entire war, and my uncle's was one of them. So my uncle wasn't even supposed to be on the plane that night. Uh, this guy named Terry was supposed to be on it instead. At the last minute, he was switched. And I found this incredible interview with him and the guilt he feels about not being the one that was on that plane, but also the relief of you know making it. And I think all of them, every night they went up, they didn't know if they'd come down again. It was very dangerous. And that builds a camaraderie that doesn't go away with time. Those men are still very close. Do you keep in touch with any of the people that you met? Yeah, definitely. I've been emailing the guys especially. I mean, I talked to a lot of them as long as six years ago. So they're like, when is the book coming out, Jess? And I'm like, soon, guys, I promise. The bummer about the pandemic is, you know, I can't really sign anything or visit with them like I was planning to. I've also been talking to the other families of um, the 13 other men who were lost on Jack's plane. And I hope when this is all over, we can get together again. And that would, that would be something I, I very much look forward to. So what's it like writing a book, putting it out there? Well, I mean, I spent most of my 20s doing this. I don't know what 20s look like otherwise, but it was a lot of, you know, I was working as a journalist at the time at the Huffington Post. So I would get up at like five or six, write my ass off until uh, maybe seven in the morning then start my full-time job. And there were times when I'd fall asleep with these CIA documents in bed with me. It was such an obsession and such a huge part of my identity. And I, uh, you know, I think I worked through a lot of stuff through writing it, but I also wonder about the experience that I was kind of missing while I was writing it. I think writing a book, you have to really, really care about what you're writing about to sustain it, especially a 10-year project like this. And I'm lucky that um, enough of the people I interviewed, you know, if I ever felt like I was flagging an interest or a, I don't know if I can do this, I would just talk to a veteran or a refugee and be like, my God, this is a story that needs to be told. And how lucky am I that I get to talk to you and tell it? And what are you working on now? Great question. Uh, now it's kind of still kind of in the throes of a digital tour. Uh, yeah, I did a 12-city book tour that was canceled. So I'm doing a lot of um, amazing podcasts like yours um, and just kind of reading to smaller bookstores digitally throughout the country, which is not quite the same. But I'm also working on a bit of fiction, which I don't want to say too much about. But I figured after you know writing about the CIA and more in death, maybe something a little more creative might be fun for the next project. So we'll see. Yeah, let me know when that one comes out. I have some other podcasts that'll be interested in talking to you. That's for sure. Amazing. Is there a podcast community? I mean, especially now, I imagine with people just like craving storytelling, how are you finding the pandemic influencing how you listen or how people listen to you? Or at least for me personally, I, I like to escape into history, you know, almost completely out of this modern context of a, mm. you know, of a pandemic. And I think um, people have said, oh, you know, Mark, keep doing these episodes, keep talking about, you know, history or these other places or these other times. So I think um, it's providing a, you know, a chance to escape. But like you said earlier, you know, it's, it's, these are, these are stories. So it's a way that people can help always be processing their present as well. I actually, I was talking to an, an English class of high school seniors earlier this morning, and you know they were talking about kind of historical stories around World War II, and I was kind of like, well, you're living in a historical moment too. Like, keep a diary, keep a journal, um, just keep track of this moment in your life, because people are going to be talking about this for years to come too. And I love what you said about people craving that history that you're telling them about. And I think it's really because history's already been written, so there's a sense of, I know the ending, it's safer than the present, but right. um, how wonderful that in the present we get to kind of create that history too. Yeah, it's almost like with history, we're more searching for meaning and, you know, a more contemporary story. You're, you want to find out what happens. I guess if you can do both, right? Which your book does, then. And what we inherit. There yes, you go. Yes, you can. <laughs> There's a little <laughs> plug right inherit, there. You get both. Yeah. So, uh, Jessica, it's really fun talking to you. And um, thanks for writing the book and thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. This is a blast. I can't wait to, to listen in. And thank you again for all that you do. I love history and I love listening. 
That was my chat with Jessica Pierce Rotondi. Her book, What We Inherit, A Secret War and a Family Search for Answers, is available now. She's on Twitter and Instagram at Jessica Rotondi and her website, jessicapiercerotondi.com. The book is published by Olivia Smith at unnamedpress.com. Untold stories, uncharted territory, undiscovered writers. I'm looking forward to what they put out soon. I'm grateful for you listeners out there. Please write a quick review on iTunes and rate. It helps. Helps me continue to get interesting guests on the show. Helps me build an audience. And you can find the show at thelivedrop.com and on Facebook at the Live Drop Podcast. If you have suggestions or a guest request, send me a message on Facebook or Twitter and Instagram at the Live Drop. Let me know. I'm always interested in what our listeners have to say. Stay safe out there. End of transmission. Transmission.